Thank you for listening to this audio recording from the pastoral team at Church of the Redeemer, an Anglican church in Greensboro, North Carolina. If you'd like to know more about Church of the Redeemer, its ministry, or its mission, then visit us online at RedeemerGSO.org. Above all else, Lord Jesus, set our hearts on fire with a love for you. And we pray these things in your name. Amen. Please be seated. Um, and we are going to begin in Romans 13 today. If you have your Bibles with you and you want to turn to Romans 13, we are continuing. We're in the second week of our Advent series, even though it's the first week of Advent. We started just a week uh, early to introduce what we're going to be talking about over the next few weeks. Um, and this Advent series is called The Time Between. So as we unpack Romans 13 a little bit here, you'll get a bit of a review of, of what we mean by that and, and where we are. Okay, so in Romans 13, Paul, who wrote this letter, has been talking about a number of different ways that Christians should behave and act, the way that the Christian church should behave, the way that, uh, that we should live in the world. And then he says this, Romans 13, verse 11, besides this, you know the time. Okay, so Paul says to them, he is, he is placing them on a timeline, or us on a timeline as Christians, in what we call the time between. Right? In other words, the time between when Christ has come the first time that where we celebrate Christmas and when Christ will return and make all things new at what we call the, the consummation. And so we live in between these two points. This is our reality on, on the timeline, where we are in history. And so Paul is making a big deal out of this. He says, you know the time that the hour has come for you to wake from sleep. For salvation is nearer to us now than when we first believed. The night is far gone. The day is at hand. You can see he's using this time metaphor, right? That is, that is both figurative in the sense of the, the night has gone, the day has come, and literal in the sense that we are moving closer to the time of when Jesus is going to return, whether that's one day from now or 10,000 days from now or 1,000 years from now. We're moving. That's the trajectory of history. He says, so, so recognize here, here you are in this place in the time between, and that, that a few things should happen because we are in this time between. First of all, it's the hour for you to wake up from sleep. So he's saying, okay, guys, like it's, it's, it's time for us now to not be distracted from the reality that we're in, to, to pay attention to the times that we're in, to look to see the way that the world is and the way that our own hearts are and, and wake up our sleeping and see clearly. And then he says this, because of all this, because of where we are on the timeline, because it's our time to wake up, he says this in the middle of verse 12. So then, so because of this, so then let us cast off works of darkness and put on the armor of light. Let us walk properly as in the daytime. So he's setting up, two different ways of being, in the darkness or in the light. And he's saying, now that we know that this is our time to, to wake up, we need to push off the acts of darkness, and we need to put on the works of, of light. Let us walk properly in this day. And he gives some specifics here, some lists of, here's some ways that we need to put off the works of darkness and put on the armor of light. If you want to read more, go to um, Colossians chapter 3. He makes big, bigger lists there of both things that we should take off and things that we should put on. But here he kind of summarizes, and he says this. He starts off with 
Uh, Let us walk properly as in the daytime, verse 13, not in orgies and drunkenness, not in sexual immorality and sensuality. So what he's saying here, first of all, he starts with our sexuality. He starts with the urges of our flesh. And he says, because of the time that we live, we need to, uh, we need to stop living for temporary fleeting pleasure that actually in the end leads to long-term physical, emotional, spiritual, and relational health. Let's start to have a better, recognize the time that we're in, in the time between, and let's stop thinking that temporary and fleeting pleasure is what we should be living for. There's, there's something more to that. And drunkenness, that's escapism, right? We don't, need to, we don't need to hide where we are. Let's wake up and look at where we are. Our understanding of where we are in history, of Jesus is coming and is coming again, is supposed to call us to act differently and to think differently and to be differently than the world. So he lists sexuality and drunkenness, and then he says, don't live in quarreling and jealousy. In other words, if we understand that Christ is coming back and he's going to renew all things and everything that is temporary will be be removed and everything that is glorious and good will be kept, and we're closer to that now than where we were before, what do we have to be jealous about here? What do we have to be jealous about? Jealousy doesn't mean anything if we're coveting things that are going to lose in the end anyway. It makes no sense. He's saying this is the kind of reality that we should live in, to be able to put jealousy behind. And in quarreling, why are we fighting? Why, are we, why in the midst of this great scheme of, of the course of history, Christ's return, or Christ's coming the first time, and Christ's return, and here we are, why are we having petty fights? Why, why aren't we recognizing the deeper reality that, that it doesn't make sense for us to just get annoyed with each other and fight over things. But instead, he says, instead of those things in sexuality and drunkenness and sensuality and quarreling and jealousy, instead of those things, verse 14, put on the armor of Christ. Put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh to gratify its desires. This is what This is what Paul is calling us to. He says it again in Colossians chapter three, where he says, set your minds on things that are above, not on things that are on earth. For you have died. That's the reality. If you are a Christian, Paul says in Galatians that I have been crucified in Christ. That if you are a Christian, if you've repented, believed, been baptized, you have died and been resurrected in Christ a new creation. And so Paul is saying here, you have died and your life is hidden with Christ and God. It belongs to him. And when Christ who is your life appears, then you will also appear with him in glory. He says, let me me lay it out for you. What has happened to you and where you are if you are a Christian? So you should set your minds on things that are above. In this time between, we should live and act differently. In fact, in our baptism service, when we enter into the Christian community, our baptismal liturgy asks three questions of us of things that we are going to renounce and three questions of us of things that we are going to put on. It goes like this. Do you renounce the devil and all the spiritual forces of wickedness that rebel against God? And and we say, I renounce them. 
Do you renounce the empty promises and deadly deceits of this world that corrupt and destroy the creatures of God? I renounce them. Do you renounce the sinful desires of the flesh that draw you from the love of God? I renounce them. In this time between, recognizing the reality that I have died with Christ is now a new way of being and living and acting and feeling and thinking and seeing. I renounce those things. Then the questions turn to what we're putting on. Do you turn to Jesus Christ and confess him as your Lord and Savior? And we respond, I do. Do you joyfully receive the Christian faith as revealed in the Holy Scriptures of the Old and New Testament? We respond, I do. And then this very important question for our, our time this morning, will you obediently keep God's holy will and commandments and walk in them all the days of your life? And here, the answer is not, I will. The answer is, I will, the Lord being my helper. Of a recognition that when we're baptized and we're brought into the church, doesn't mean we don't need Jesus anymore. It means that we need him all the more. That we recognize our need for a savior and one who sustains us and one who changes us. In order to be obedient to the will and the work and the commands of God, we need the Lord as our helper. These are our vows that we make as Christians, that in light of the coming of Jesus Christ and in light of his redemption that he has brought to us and his consummation when he will come to make all things new, that we should be pursuing the things of God and putting off the earthly things of the flesh. We should, every aspect of our behavior, our opinions, our thoughts, our hearts, everything should be different. But here is where the sermon takes a little bit of a different turn. Because yes, in light of these things, we need to repent from our sin and begin to think and act and see things differently. But how do we do that? Simple behavior management doesn't work. So we go, I'm just going to decide to do better. Does anybody have a treadmill at home with all of your clothes hanging off of it? There's a, that's a sacrament of you trying to make a decision and changing your behavior, right? It's working out well, right? What, what about your New Year's resolution? Do you even remember what that was in January of last year? Simple behavior management, I'm going to choose to be better doesn't work. The entirety of the Old Testament says that deciding to be better doesn't work. We were given out, written out the law of the Lord, said, okay, be better, follow this. And the entirety of the Old Testament is Israel not being able to live it out and recognizing the need for a Savior. But why doesn't it work? And this is, this is where Paul putting us on this timeline is so important. Because the timeline of what we call redemptive history, of the Lord redeeming the world, begins with creation in Genesis 1 and 2, when all things were created and they were good. And then sin enters into the world in Genesis chapter 3. And what was good is twisted. We're created in the image of God in chapter 1 and chapter 2. And then in chapter 3, the outlook in the outpouring of our lives, it's twisted. Our behavior is twisted. Our understanding of being able to see things clearly is twisted. Creation itself is, goes from good to being tainted with sin. And so what's happened to us is that as such a fundamental change in us from the sin of our very first parents, Adam and Eve, that the instruments that we use to make decisions, to think we know what is right, to feel, to act properly, cannot be counted on in their natural state. Let me explain what I mean. 
Our very selves are twisted. The things we use for knowing and feeling and deciding and acting are broken. So without Jesus, we can neither see the world properly, nor can we fix it. I, I have a favorite pair of sunglasses that I only wear when I drive. That's it. They're polarized. They were a gift from a friend. They're great. Love them. Uh, one time, I wore them outside of my truck. One time. I accidentally left them on my head. And then I was talking with someone, and I laughed, and my head went back like this, and my sunglasses fell off my head onto the asphalt, lens down. So now, in the middle of my favorite driving-only sunglasses, they don't leave my truck, there are two scratches right in the middle of the lens. And so when I drive, there are now little white dots all the time in front of me. My lens is scratched, and I can't perceive the world properly. And so it is with our own eyes and our own hearts and our own minds. Our lenses are scratched. Jesus said, Love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind and with all your strength. But none of these function properly due to sin. We need them to be realigned. Let's look at them one by one, right? The, the heart, the embodiment of our being, the source of our emotions and our motivations. And our culture uses this as its primary compass. Just follow your heart. And I'm going to do this because I know in my heart that it's right. Or someone of your friends who might say, I don't, I'm a Christian, but I don't think you need to be a part of a church because I love Jesus and he knows my heart. It's, the problem is Jeremiah 17, 9, that says, the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. Who can understand it? Right? Our hearts are sick. We can't depend on our hearts to lead us in the right direction. We can't even give our hearts to Jesus properly because, our, because we... You, you might have tried that. You might have sung the songs. You might have filled out the card. You might have done the whole thing. You might have said the sinner's prayer. You're given, but then you still sin, don't you? Right? Our hearts are twisted. Our souls, heart and soul, our souls, the breath of God dwelling within us that in the person that God created us, the spiritual eternal part of our being is the very thing that hangs in the balance, whether it will be given to the world and the flesh or to Christ in immortality. Paul, Paul talks about this um, in Colossians chapter 3 when he says we need to put off our old self with its practices and put on our new self, which is being renewed in the knowledge after the image of its creator. So our heart doesn't work right. Our soul doesn't work right. Our mind, our intellect won't save us. The smarter that we get as humanity, the more ways we find to be able to kill each other. Right? Our intellect won't save us. Paul talks about in Romans 12, you need, don't be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and, purpose, uh, and perfect. And so we need Jesus to save our minds as well. And then finally, heart, soul, mind, and strength. Our bodies are experiencing the world that has been corrupted by sin. We're decaying before our own eyes. You might not recognize it when you're 15 or 25. 35, you start to get a glimpse, right? Once you cross 40, you're, you're full on a theologian at that point where you're like, yes, we live in a sinful world and I can prove it to you with my body because it's breaking down. So, so here we are 
in the already and the not yet, the tension between the redemption that Jesus has brought, where he has inaugurated his kingdom and inaugurated redemption, but it hasn't fully come yet until he returns. And we're here in the middle, and, and here is an outline of the bleak human condition. We are bent by the fall. We are twisted towards sin. We are drawn to it. We justify it. We long for it. It is so embedded in us that we cannot feel, think, or act our way out of it. And the ramifications of sin bring about profound suffering in the world. The the immensity of this must, must sink in. We live in a twisted version of a world that God originally created as good. So things are not as they should be in our own hearts, souls, minds, and bodies, nor in the world in which we live. And we can do nothing in our current state to fix the world. It's helpless. But Paul said the hour is at hand. Remember the day in which you're leaving, in which you are living, that Jesus is coming. We are closer now to our salvation than when we first believed, he said. Jesus said that the kingdom of God is at hand. And when when Jesus said, the kingdom of God is at hand. What do we do to prepare for that? We talked about this last week. Well, we repent. We turn away from the kingdom of the air. We turn away from the flesh. We turn towards Jesus. And what leads us to repentance is that we must be cut to the heart by our own sinful reality about why we need to repent and why sin is so horrendous and how helpless we are to heal ourselves and why we need a Savior. And then after repentance, when we belong to Jesus Christ, we do not get so lost in heavenly things that we forget to have compassion on the broken world in which we live or fail to recognize its continued effects on our own selves. And so therefore, our repentance, which is what we need to do to prepare for the kingdom of God coming, our repentance is soaked in lamentation. We lament. Lamentation means to to pour out our sorrows, to pour out our sorrows on the plight of the world, on our own lives, on those of our children. We pour out our, our terrors. We pour out our fear. We pour out our sorrow. We see We see instances in the Old Testament especially where people are so moved in lamenting that they tear their clothes and they pour ashes on their heads and they fast because they are lamenting. Advent teaches us that the king has come and has inaugurated the victory, but is not fully realized until he comes again. And so in this time between, we hold equally to the joy of the coming of Jesus and that the future holds the the return of Jesus. And we also, in this state, cry out for healing. We cry out for relief. We cry out for the coming king. This is what Advent is about. It begins with lamentation of the human condition to recognize why we need the king to come. I know that our culture is already playing sappy, nostalgic Christmas songs with no theological value. It is using the term joy of the holidays a lot right now, right? But isn't even that a product of a fallen world? In that 
we have created Christmas into some kind of winter festival that's full of empty joy that we're supposed to just somehow create. And now many years of this wintry, snowy, candy cane filled festival has not solved any of the problems of the world. We need something deeper. We need something greater. We need to not just hide in a, in a joy-filled holiday season. We need the actual return of the king. We need something greater, something deeper, not to escape in a consumeristic season, but to dig deeply into the longing for the king to come. And this doesn't ruin our joy. Advent begin, needs to begin with lament. It's not pleasant, but it is a recognition of why it will be so joyful when Christ comes. Lamentation actually increases joy as we recognize what we are being saved from and the magnitude of the promises of Christ when he says that he is coming to fix it all. And so we begin Advent by sitting in lament. Lamentation is so important because it helps us properly understand our present suffering. It helps us to see that there's not either a good God or suffering. That suffering does not disprove a good God, but rather Advent and lamentation shows that one of the reasons that God is good is that he's with us in our present suffering, that he's come to save us and he's coming again to make all things new and that one day there will be no more suffering at all. And we sit in that tension here in the time between. We must lament the brokenness of the world with hope in light of the coming of Christ, or else when we see the brokenness of the world, we'll still lament, but we'll do it with hopelessness. And this is the problem with our culture right now. We have lost lamenting, and all we have is anger and blame. And bitterness. There are times when we just need to sit and lament. We don't have to hide our suffering. We don't have to close our eyes to the pain we experience. We do not have to deny the unjust nature of the awful things that we are experiencing. To do this doesn't, doesn't show a weak faith. They show a strong faith in our need for redemption. Because we have lost lamentation, all we have is to be angry and depressed. We're angry at other people for whatever we blame them for. We're angry at ourselves for whatever... We know that whatever part we played in creating the world as it is, we're angry at God when we think that he is not acting. Look, there are things we should be angry at. We should be angry at Satan's sin and death. But our response to the results of Satan's sin and death should first be lamentation. To lament. Not to find who to blame and be angry. Not, not who to find conflict to. Not who to find retribution for. But to to lament the state of humanity that is twisted by sin, that we don't even know how to act properly in this world, and that the world has lost its hope in Christ, and we should lament. Lamentation begins with sorrow. Our dear friend Larry Boast used to sit right over here, who has impacted the lives of so many people in the name of Jesus, died yesterday in a hospital bed in Charlotte. And I lament this. It's not right. Death is not good. It's not what it's meant. We are not meant for death. I lament for his family. 
I lament for his grandchildren. I lament for those of us who knew him so well in this church that he helped to get started. I lament his death. My father died of lung cancer when I was nine years old, leaving my mother to work three jobs to care for my brother and I. And I've suffered without a father for 34 years. And I lament it. There are people in this room whose marriages started so wonderfully and are now have turned into a place of separation where they are pondering divorce. Friends, let us lament. People are shivering in darkness and freezing weather without power in Ukraine due to the greed and pride and war that is surrounding them. Let us lament to pour out our sorrows. 25 million people are currently victims of human trafficking throughout the world for sex or forced labor. 25 million. Let us lament. Our teenagers are struggling so deeply with anxiety that suicide is the second leading cause of death among people aged 15 to 24 in the U.S. Nearly 20% of high school students report serious thoughts of suicide and 9% have attempted suicide. Let us weep and lament. Our children, our spouses, our friends are sick with diseases. Let us lament. Over 300 people died in an earthquake in Indonesia this week, covered in rubble. Let us lament. Nearly 1 million unborn children were aborted last year in the U.S. alone. Let us lament. Father Benjamin Wall, his his beloved aunt just died last week, leaving his family in mourning. Let us lament. 140 people die each day in the U.S. from drug overdose, particularly from opioids. Let us lament. Two of our friends and staff members, Lena and Judson, are still in Minnesota recovering from fetal surgery on their unborn daughter, Junia, who has spina bifida and may not walk. Let us lament. A manager at Walmart walked into the break room and killed seven of his coworkers and then himself. Let us lament. Our local churches everywhere have conflict and broken relationships. Let us lament. There are globally 103 million people forcefully displaced into immigration or seeking asylum due to war and persecution. Let us lament. In South Sudan in the last 10 years, over 400,000 people have been killed in ethnic cleansing and the persecution of Christians. Let us lament. 6.7 million people have died since the beginning of the COVID pandemic. Let us lament. Neighborhoods are isolated. People are lonely. Sex is our God. Poverty is rampant. Disunity runs wild. Relationships are toxic. Family gatherings are fraught with conflict. We ache for ourselves, for our children, for the world. And we lament. And listen, you may have political opinions on how to answer some of these things, of solutions to some of the things that I brought up. Just bringing up some of these things may have stirred you to anger, but don't you see even that is an indication of our fallen human condition that we cannot find solutions together for these things without being angry and offended at one another. Let us find unity first in our lamentation before arguing over solutions. And what can you add to this list? We could go around the room and you could add things from your own family, from your own life that you are lamenting, that is unjust, that is saddening, that is broken. 
You can add to this list. And when we lament properly, it eases our pain. It brings perseverance to our suffering because we can invoke the one who can actually make these things move. We lament with hope. See, this is why lamenting is so important because there is an end to these things. That, that, that there is one who is coming to save. There is one that is coming to make all things new. There is one who will wipe away every tear from our eyes and there will be no more sickness and there will be no more death and there will be no more conflict and there will be no more war and there will be no more sin. Our lamentation has purpose when we lament in hope at the coming of Christ. So our song lament says, come, Lord Jesus, come. This world is broken with sin and I'm suffering and my children are suffering and our nation and our world is in confusion and some of this pain I have caused and some of the suffering um, of others have caused suffering in more people and some of our sin and our anguish is due to the broken world that we live in and the only one who can save us is you. Come, Lord Jesus. We repent for our part and on behalf of all people and we need your redemption. Come, Lord Jesus, come, O King, restore your kingdom. And God, he laments with us. We see Jesus as he approaches the holy city of God in Jerusalem, and, and he calls out over the city, represent the entire, representing the entire people of God. And he says this in Matthew 23, O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to it. How often would I have gathered your children together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings and you were not willing. See, your house is left to you desolate. Or the time that Jesus comes to see his dear friend Lazarus who has died. They love one another as deeply as friends and Mary and Martha and, the, and their family is together. And when Jesus shows up, they say to him, if you'd been here, if only you'd acted, Lazarus would not have died. And he feels their pain and half of their accusation, but half of their calling out and faith and this tension that they're in. And he says, show me where you've laid him. And they take him to the tomb where they've laid Lazarus. And then there's this amazing verse, the shortest verse in all of scripture, but one of the most poignant, John chapter 11, verse 35, where Jesus wept. He wept. He knew what was about to happen. He knew that he was about to tell Lazarus, come on out, get up, wake up from death. He knew he was about to be reunited with his friend. He knew the joy that, that Mary and Martha and all those gathered were about to experience. He knew all that was coming. And yet still in their current condition, Jesus looked upon Lazarus and upon that tomb and upon those who were in anguish and he wept with compassion. And we, friends, are at that same place. There will be a resurrection. We will be reunited. There will be a time when we sit around this table again with Larry Bost. There will be a time when Junior Van Wyck will walk. We know that's coming. But right now, we lament at the human condition and long for the one who will make it all come true. We long for the coming of the King. As unpleasant as it is, let us face our sin and suffering head on. Let us not escape or distract 
or fight each other. Let us not hide our grief or our pain or our fear. Let us pause our seeking for man-made solutions and simply call out to the king. Come, Lord Jesus, ease our pain. Come, Lord Jesus, heal our hearts. Come, Lord Jesus, comfort our souls. Come, Lord Jesus, renew our minds, heal our bodies, save our world, bring unity and love. Besides this, you know the hour. This is the day that you live in the time between when there is a tension between sin and redemption, weeping and joy. And we pray, Lord Jesus, that in this time, you would give us an undying hope that when you come, you will make all things. And so we lament the state of the human condition, but let us lament with hope because the king is coming. We pray these things in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen.